0: problem with let's say a very caricature interpretation of how we act in our linear perspective worldview is that you always have an actor who believes that he knows best what others are supposed to do and that kind of gives a hierarchy of actors and the hierarchy is based on supposed knowledge and over decades of course one of the problems with development was that those who believed to have the knowledge to develop didn't quite take seriously what local people had to say. Not in the sense that you wouldn't ask people, where do you want our school to be built, but to kind of really understand development as a real dialogue, a real process. And there's a power structure in development. I mean, once you have the money, you have power, if you like it or not. And you might be very nice, and you might be very you know open to other views, but there's a power issue. And this power issue transcends into a knowledge power issue.
1: Welcome to Scus Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode I talk to Philip Lepenis, professor in political science with a special focus on sustainability at the Department of Political Sciences at the Freie Universität Berlin. He is the Chair of Politics, Sustainability, and since February 2022, he also serves as the Director of the Research Center for Sustainability. With the background of a development practitioner, he has developed a wide research interest spanning from the history of ideas over political economy of statistics and indicators to concepts to sustainable development. And this is the third episode in our theme, Developmental Issues and Human Rights, Philip Lepenis was a fellow at SCAS during the academic year of 2009-2010 and we connected for a distant recording in June 2022 to follow up what had happened since Philip Lepenis' stay at the Collegium. Welcome to SCAS Talks. Would you like to say a few words about yourself?
0: Well, first of all, thanks, thanks for having me and giving me the opportunity to Tell other people about my great experience at SCUS, and I'm uh, very eager to answer all of your questions.
1: Great. (laughs) So, as I said, you were a scholar here at SCUS in the academic year of 2009 2010, some years ago. What did you do prior to coming here to your year at SCUS?
0: Well, when I was at SCUS, as you said, I was a scholar, but before coming to SCUS, I was not a scholar. So, actually, SCUS helped me become one. And what I did, as you said in the introduction, was I actually worked in development cooperation. So I was employed as an economist by the large German bilateral aid agency. And for about nine years, I was in charge of the typical development projects in the global south, mainly in Southeast Asia and uh, in Latin America. But I always wanted to come back to academia. So... In order to do that and in order to finish what in Germany is called the Habilitation or the second book in order to become eligible to be a professor, I took a year off and got the opportunity to come to SCAS.
1: And what did you do once you were here then during your year as a scholar?
0: I had my so-called Habilitationsprojekt, so this idea of a second book. Parallel to my working full-time as a development practitioner, I was already in contact with people from the University of Frankfurt in the political science department that allowed me as an external agent, so to speak, to finish and work on my habilitation. But doing that parallel to, you know, at least 40-week work schedule isn't really practical. So I took a sabbatical to write that book. So this one-second book.
1: And uh, what did you look at in this book? Maybe you could... um give a brief summary.
0: I can give a summary. Let's see if it's brief, because the topic is quite broad. But to speak in serious terms, I was always interested in the explanation for persisting mindsets in politics and in society. What does that mean? That means that sometimes political structures, institutional structures, policies that we can observe in real world are based on path-dependent ideas which have been around for times people might not even remember. To give an example, this idea of development, breaking it down means that somebody, mainly people from the global north, believe to know how to shape the future for other people. So there are various aspects involved in this simple idea of development, which for most people just means helping people who are poor, which is you know charitable and very good, and it's a great idea and makes you feel good. But behind it are aspects which are, if you're outside of a regional context, you believe yourself to be competent enough to understand what the problem of other people is. And you believe to be competent enough to know the answers, which is not only money, it's structural adjustment, it's ideas, it's education, whatever. And then you believe that you can provide the means for people in the global south to become better off. And all this is not... As development policy is very new, I mean, this is a policy area of the post-World War II period. But, of course, the idea of helping others, of, of having a specific look towards other people, of classifying people unconsciously as underdeveloped and in need of something, which is something we define, not these people define. And that goes back to, of course, enlightenment And I was always intrigued to understand why, at a certain point in the European Enlightenment philosophy, this idea of qualifying otherness as being sort of underdeveloped, qualifying in the sense of looking at the world and seeing different parts of the world as on one linear path and some in front and others in the back, where did that come from? And this is what I looked at.
1: And can you tell us a little bit, or what conclusion did you arrive at?
0: Yeah, sure. The great thing about a place like SCUS is that it allows to develop crazy ideas. So I developed one, which, of course, in my opinion, it's not crazy, but it kind of mixes disciplines together in a way which would not have been possible in a like university setting. So I have this one point of departure, which is one French philosopher, which is the Marquis de Condorcet. And the Marquis de Condorcet is the one who, in European philosophy, is the inventor of our modern notion of progress. So, the whole idea of progress being improving towards the future and mankind being able to manage and administer this path towards a better future comes from this one man who was a mathematician and a politician at the time of the French Revolution. And it's no coincidence that he, as a mathematician, was the first to believe that the future is a category that can be politically administered, which means we can make the future better. So all our ideas of a brighter future, of political ideas that lead to a better tomorrow, be it socialism, communism, Western liberal, capitalist ideas of progress, democratic ideas of progress, derive from this one single person. And I knew that when I came to discuss, but what I wanted to find out is why him and if he's the beginning of let's say this idea of development because the idea of development is actually in this pamphlet of progress that he writes about he writes about Africa he writes about Asia he writes about the Europeans becoming teachers and brothers to everybody else but he he does that in a very rationalist way he says we have to we have to make people use reason it's not a colonial kind of uh, 19th century imperialist idea. It's, it's really this idea of coming together and being better and, and all that. And if, if this guy is at the beginning of progress, I wanted to know what is the process of which this guy is the end point? So what actually was before Condorcet and why was that guy able to come up with this you know extremely powerful idea? And my take was that Condorcet looks at the world as if it were a painting painted in linear perspective. So like this perspective that we, we're taught at school where you kind of fix one focal point on the horizon and all the orthogonal lines, all lines that are like parallel to the frame of the picture, mingle into this one, one spot which is, of course, always this kind of visualization of progress. It's like this one goal, the sun we want to come at. And in political iconography and posters, you can see all through the 20th century, this you know, idea of linearity and a brighter future. And, so. and linear perspective, of course, is a mathematical theory. It's not just how to draw realistically. Behind it is a very thorough and, of course, detailedly studied mathematical view of the world that takes centuries to transgress the idea of painting into a mindset. But it has a lot to do with the history of science, of how the specific optimism of understanding physical reality mathematically kind of becomes brighter and broader and broader. And until in the end, it includes the future, which is a mathematical category because it's, it's about probabilism and, the probability of things happening and trying to calculate risks and things like that. So it is kind of like a history of visualization of the physical world, of the advances of mathematics. And I'm not making this up. There's like within art history, there's like a, a huge and very famous interpretation of all the effects that linear perspective has had. But what had not been done before is to really mix these Let's say, history of ideas focus on progress with this long tradition in art history to explain what linear perspective has done to us. And what I was able to do at SCAS was to combine like sociologically inspired art history with political ideas and include this in the, when I was at SCAS, ongoing international discussion about why aid doesn't work.
1: That's very interesting. Would it be smarter to think about networks, where things interact with each other and influence each other?
0: More or less, yes. The problem with, let's say, a very caricature interpretation of how we act in our linear perspective worldview is that you always have an actor who believes that he knows best what others are supposed to do. And that kind of gives a hierarchy of actors. And the hierarchy is based on supposed knowledge. And over decades, of course, one of the problems with development was that those who believed to have the knowledge to develop didn't quite take seriously what local people had to say. Not in the sense that you wouldn't ask people, where do you want our, uh, you know, school to be built, but to kind of really understand development as a real dialogue, a, le- a real process. And although, of course, one might think, well, this is done. And of course, people are not that dominant and, and international institutions are not, you know, they're not stupid. They try to enter into dialogue. They try to uh, see this as some diplomatic interaction under, with equals. But there's a power structure in development. I mean, once you have the money, you have power, if you like it or not. And you might be very nice, and you might be very, you know, open to other views, but there's a power issue. And this power issue transcends into a knowledge power issue. And the important thing is this doesn't have to be a bad thing. I mean, you can look at it in a consequentialist term and say, well, if something comes out of this, and people in some region, in some village, in some country are better off, or at least have a glimpse of what life could be like, great. It's not saying, you know, don't do it, and this is really bad. It's just trying to understand path-dependent structures. But, of course, it's very, very difficult to get rid of that. So all this talk about, you know, dialogue between equals and so that's a start. And, of course, a lot has changed in the decades of development aid, development aid of the 1950s, 60s, in a very post-colonial setting in Africa. is very different from how things are done today, especially because now you have new actors like China who try to play exactly on a different note than the Western and American-inspired aid agencies. And they, and they play with these ideas of, you know, we are not like these people. We do not look at the world like they do. We treat you in a different way. And so there's a lot of uh, competition going on in the field. There's a lot of development within development, but it's very, very difficult to get rid of many of these aspects of this linear perspective worldview that puts some people ahead of others.
1: Makes sense. You said that in the end of your work at SCAS, you came to the conclusion why aid doesn't work. So what did you do with that knowledge then? Where did you go from there? Well,
0: it wasn't that I discovered while sitting in the linear Arnhem that aid didn't work. But at the time, there was a huge international debate with, at that time, very, very prominent authors from within the World Bank, from within other circles of development that questioned the way aid was done. There was this, this idea, there was this World Bank economist that coined the terms planners and searchers. And he says, the problem is that development practitioners, the way they work, they don't search for locally adaptable, useful solutions. They have a plan. So they come somewhere with a PowerPoint presentation on how to organize the water sector or they believe they know what's wrong with, you know, unexisting economic growth, so they know what to do. So these are the planners. So he kind of described the reality and the mechanisms of how aid works as, you know, this kind of detached group of experts flying around the world, staying in five-star hotels, and having the answers in the suitcase. And what I tried to do was go into this discussion and explain the then ongoing kind of description of aid in an historic, path-dependent, ideological way. So it was more, let's say, um, broadening the debate and putting a historical dimension into a debate so that people who at that time were discussing what can we do differently, understand that it's very difficult to change path-dependent cemented ways of thinking and that happens a lot in politics we always know what's wrong and we believe that just by thinking differently like from one day to another structures change and and kind of everything that's behind or everything that's like invisibly on our shoulders changes with just you know changing words or changing uh, the way we look at things and and that's not happening so in my opinion to improve on structures on institutions we need an institutional, historical consciousness. And this is what I wanted to provide. I mean, as I said, aid is not its not black and white. It's not good or bad. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it works less good. Sometimes it doesn't work at all. But as development started, as a policy directed at countries that were no longer colonies in the 1950s. So the idea was, as now we have these new independent countries that are independent for the first time, at least in our point of view, right? Like in this uh, post-colonial nation-building process. So now we come with development because people seem to be poor. There's this belief that there's nothing before 1950s. There's no parallel to what has been done as aid from the 1950s onwards, which, when you look at the terms used, is true. We didn't talk about aid in the 1920s or 30s. But the whole logic of aid is older. And we shouldn't forget that. Whereas, again, this doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it, but it means that it's problematic in a way that you, you can't just say you change words and then you change processes, because that's not how things work.
1: You said in the beginning that you became a scholar at SCAS, and then I gather that you decided to stay a scholar also when you came back home. So how did you take this knowledge, put it into your scholarly work, so to say, and also giving back to practice? How did you do that?
0: Well, my dream and aspiration was always to have this habilitation and become a professor. So that was always my goal. So I knew that if I really wanted to have a fair chance at realizing this goal, which is not easy at all, I would have to let go from the work I did before and kind of plunge into this jungle, which is academia. But of course, with the Habilitation, so I came back to Frankfurt and I still worked at the Development Bank for about uh, two more years. Of course, the process administratively of the University of Frankfurt accepting the second book, and then there's a whole process, which is parallel, a bit similar to a doctoral dissertation. So you have committees and they have to agree that this is, you know, um, suitable for habilitation or all that so that takes some time and but once i had that i knew that somehow i had to leave and there was no way of combining academic work with project management work it doesn't fit and it takes a lot of time away from you know time you wouldn't need for your family you know it's, it's not manageable and i got the possibility to work at a newly created research institute in potsdam close to berlin where the then director, who's the former minister for the environment of Germany, he's German, let's say, sustainability and environmental policy circles. He's very well known. And he came up to me and said, you know, why don't you come to my institute and you can build up your own department and basically do what you think is right and, yeah, take it from there. And I was, well, that's a great opportunity. And so this is how I stopped becoming a practitioner and became full-time academic at a research institute. There was no way that the knowledge that I created or gained at SCAS could have been, you know, kind of really influenced the way I did projects when I came home. That that didn't work. That was not not even my intention because things are very, you know, clear cut and sometimes they might not even have to be improved because there are a lot of things that go wrong in aid that are outside of AID that have to do with your natural catastrophes, that has to do with political instability in countries, that has to do with diplomatic priorities that germany has in the interaction with different countries where then you know how projects work is not interesting for our ministry it's that we work together so you have a lot of aspects of why a is weird as a policy field although interesting but i couldn't kind of make use of my academic work in my practical work which is okay but then i skipped to you know desk work academia which which was fine
1: This year we had a symposium here at SCAS, which was called "Opening the Ivory Tower Wide," which was about outreach of academic research to different fields, mm-hmm. for example, policymaking and, and these kind of things. Do you have any thoughts on how academia can get better at doing these kind of things, outreach, and in your case, influencing the development work?
0: I guess my first advice would be for all academics to. Stop feeling bad about being in an ivory tower. That's a great thing. I mean, that's luxurious. So enjoy it. A lot of wisdom, a lot of knowledge that has been created was never created with the idea of influencing policies, let alone working on everyday problems. The whole idea of an Institute for Advanced Studies, curiosity-driven knowledge without interference. And the reason why they are so many Institutes of Advanced Study, when they get funding in the world, is that they know that great things can come out when you just leave people alone. But at the same time, there's a pressure, especially from those who give the funding, and especially when those are public entities, that somehow you have to, you know, kind of really directly cry out what you're doing. And the best thing would be, you know, to influence policies directly and kind of show this direct lineage between what you research on and what politics does. And of course, in some disciplines, that's easier than in others. In the social science, not that easy. But of course, it's always good to know how politics works and what the expectations of policymakers are in terms of knowledge. And there are different national historical cultures of this academia Politics interaction. And in the case of Germany, that is really, really difficult. It is difficult because we view these two areas as completely separate. It's like one side of the street and the other side of the street, and you don't cross. And if you cross, you go back really quickly because the others don't want to have you. When I was in the development bank, I was for some time in the strategy department. And the strategy department of the bank had, of course, the idea that, you know, why don't we learn from academia what's wrong with aid? Or why not have academics come and give talks and let's see if, you know, we can learn from them. But interestingly, there's no real openness as to be surprised by academia. What is their take is that you have a very specific problem. It's like a machine. So you have this wonderful machine, which is full of parts that are kind of intertwined and it works together. And then suddenly one of the parts fails and the machine doesn't work any longer, but you're unable to fix the machine. So you have academics come in and what you want specifically is for them to fix this one part of this big machine so that the big machine keeps working. But an academic might give you a lot of different ideas, but not this one piece that you need. So it doesn't come together because the, let's say the openness is not there. The culture of just listening to academics for the sake of inspiration, for, you know, serendipity, for just learning what other people do with openness is not there. It's like very focused on what you need. And if you feel that you're not getting what you need, you say, this, this doesn't make sense. And it works like this on both sides. So we have, In Germany, the practitioners, which somehow have very, very big difficulties in just openly communicating to academia, and it always ends with them saying, well, this was a waste of time. So you have like a talk, and you have somebody talking about his research, and in the end, it was like, oh my God, these professors, this is a waste of time. I can do nothing with that. And on the other side, you have, of course, naive professors who believe that their research is really, really of practical value. So then they... Reach out and try to, you know, establish contacts with politicians. And then in the end, learn that they don't listen to them or that they want something that you can't give them. So both sides go out of this, you know, mixing of academia and politics and are completely dissatisfied. And this is kind of a very ironically summarized cultural thing in Germany between the problems of communicating between academia and politics. But of course, it works in different parts where the political interest is very high, especially when you work on an issue and you have data on, let's say, some social phenomenon that is really on the agenda, migration, or something about crime in specific social groups. Or now, if you have something about Russians living in Germany and uh, you want to learn about their political awareness or their take on democracy then of course politics listen to you and then you're able to translate this into policy papers and all that but i believe there are two sides of course it's always important to be open and it's always important to listen and to establish contacts that's something everybody has to work on and should work on because at the end of the day us working at universities which are publicly funded we're funded by taxpayers money and it's politicians that make sure that we're given that money, even if there's like no question that universities will be funded. But sometimes they're underfunded or could be better funded. So we have, let's say, a professional obligation to make known what we're doing next to teaching. And that's the responsibility of each and every academic working in the public sector. We're public officials. We can't just hide in the ivory tower. But then there's this cultural thing, which is in different countries, it's very, very different. So if you take the case of Great Britain, or the case of the United States, the kind of crossing to and fro between politics and academia is sometimes part of professional biographies. So if you've been in politics for a long time, you might be invited to some great university for a couple of years, very well-funded, and you learn what students are like, what young people think, what you know the whole academic world is about, and then you go back. And the institutional structure allows that. It allows for people mixing and becoming part of this other side of the road. And this in Germany is completely impossible. It's like something that never happens. You're either a practitioner or a politician or you're somebody in academia. And these worlds are completely apart and they even frown upon the other. They're like, hmm, these practitioners. And the others are like, oh, these academics are like, you know. And then comes this idea with the ivory tower. So... It's your personal obligation to see that you know you look outside of the ivory tower, but as long as you're in the ivory tower, you might as well enjoy it.
1: But you were given the chance then to establish your own research center, as you said. So how did you decide then what to work on? How did you choose research projects?
0: At the time I started at this research institute in Potsdam, there was an interesting international discussion, which actually started in the last months that I was in SCAS, which was a kind of OECD, country-led initiative of looking at what wealth means and well-being and how this is measured. So the idea was that Western industrialized countries focus too much on GDP, gross domestic product, and growth, like the, the rate of change of gross domestic product from one year to another, as like this one-size-fits-all measure of how a country is doing and how the people within a country are doing. And, of course, it's been known for decades that this is not the ideal measure to look at well-being and welfare. But there have very seldom been really attempts to see whether we can actually calibrate new measures. And the very fascinating point was that there was this debate in countries like Great Britain, Australia, France, which was like at the forefront under the presidency of Sarkozy to come up with like ideas of what to measure and how to measure. And there were debates in Germany. So the big thing at that time we're talking about 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013 was countries looking and discussing and that was like from the social science perspective interesting to see the process of how that worked. Not only, you know, what is measure A? Is that better than measure B? That's not the point. But to see how different countries in different political settings try to engage. And that, again, is, you know, a point where academics and politicians meet and where their expectations might be fulfilled or not in coming up with something which is fundamental, which is understanding what makes up a good life and a good life in societal terms. And that was something I was then working on, because, of course, this fixation on growth and this fixation on GDP has a lot to do with development, because at the end of the day, development is always boiled down to growth, always has been. I mean, there are different, you know, broadenings of of development. Everybody knows development is not only growth, but it's very, very focused on growth. If you grow, things are good. The economy is good. The country will be good. Every politician believes that. And so this was not too far away from the things I did before. And when I listened and observed these ongoing discussions in certain OECD countries, I had the same feeling as I had when I got the idea for my project at SCAS that a historical dimension is missing, which is not that I'm only you know interested in history, but I find a lot of answers in history because they're there to find. The future is always speculation, but history is somehow you have some place you can look at, look for clues, might misinterpret them, but you can find something. And I found it interesting that there was no discussion in any country at the time about how to explain that this focus on growth had become so dominant in politics. And so I worked on that question. So how can we understand the process in which one measure becomes a universal measure? And it's so it sits so squarely in the saddle that it cannot be changed. Because, again, everybody knows GDP and growth are not good measures. Everybody knows that they contribute to the degradation of our environment and everything that has led to climate change. But still, never was it changed. And every country uses it. So how, how does that work? I mean, how can you explain that? They like at one day say, yeah, great idea. Let's all do it. Or what's the story behind it? And I was amazed myself that as an economist by training, we were never taught when this idea of growth developed. We were never taught when this kind of got universally accepted and how. And in the courses I give, I usually ask students, students of of economics mostly, when do you think did this idea of GDP and growth come up? And you have answers from, you know, ancient uh, Greece to Sweden in the 17th century to any any possibility you can think of, which just shows that we don't have the historical consciousness of knowing where our ideas come from. And for me, that's a fundamental question. So in the years after SCAS, I worked on a book on the political history of GDP, meaning the political history or the history of how a measure became part of politics and how politics has become a politics of numbers.
1: I find it very interesting that you point out that we don't know where our ideas come from.
0: Sometimes.
1: As a natural scientist, I've also experienced that. You learn a lot about the details of a cell and the mechanism and all these things, but then you don't really know so much about the history of the science and ideas behind it. Yeah, that's true. So more of that during the university education would be good. You published this book, um, Power of a Number, related to GDP, as you said, as a measure of a country's output, but it's more complicated than that. How would you like to use GDP or, or alternatively measure the output of a country?
0: Well, I'm not in a position to kind of unilaterally declare what should or should not be done. I find it interesting that you enter into a debate that also might lead to finding out that everything you wish to be put into an indicator is maybe not possible. One reason why we don't have you know, a country that I can pinpoint to and say, wow, out of this discussion came up an alternative to GDP is because it's really, really difficult. And GDP is really, really easy. It's really easy to calculate. It's easy to understand. And all these ideas of you know, what is good in life and how can we... It's a matter of translating something which is not quantifiable into quantities and numbers. How can you quantify the quality of life? It's a very interesting philosophical question. And it's a question that different parts and different segments of society answer differently. And they answer differently over the course of time. If you would ask a female young scholar from the 2020s about what quality of life consists of, She would give different answers than her grandmother because, you know, it has to do with changing roles of society and and aspirations and possibilities. Of course, I mean, that's logic. So it's important to, let's say, not underestimate the forces that come out unintendedly of a process like this. And these processes have been very participatory. So in many countries you would have you know some form of civil participation in the debates of what should be measured what's important to us and out of that even if you don't have a measure even if you don't have an alternative to GDP even if you cannot say let's do this instead of that and just do it from one day to another you might come up with new policy areas you might come up with a form in which parts of society which have been silenced or have been silent or didn't even know that they could speak Publicly about what's important to them, made their voices heard and allowed, sometimes on a communal level, sometimes on a regional level, sometimes on a national level. So, this helps politics and it helps people to engage in politics, speaking very idealistically, because there are also conflicts in that. There are other groups that say, Why are we listening to these folks? Why not listen to us? Why is this done and not that? So, it's not that everything is great because people discuss what good life is. But you'd see the influence on politics through these debates. You see influences on research because different parts of, you know, happiness, economics, and all this stuff becomes more prominent, becomes more important, is politically more important. And this is just something that, that is worthwhile scrutinizing as a social scientist. But I would not be in a position to say, you know, what has to be done. I like watching the process and documenting processes and seeing what comes out of it. But I'm not, uh, you know, researching on the formula to make the world a better place, unfortunately.
1: You already mentioned sustainability also, and the sustainability as a development project. Would you like to share your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, sure. Everybody believes to understand what sustainability means. And when you're asked to really, you know, boil it down, maybe it's difficult to understand what sustainability is. But one could say that sustainability or sustainable development is, of course, or has become a global normative framework. So I guess everybody who's not completely out of his mind, knows that our policies have to be framed within some idea of sustainability and sustainable development, which basically means keeping us as a species alive and not destroying all of our livelihoods and and possibilities of survival. And this has to do with the reaction towards climate change and the reactions towards the negative effects of the industrial growth process of part of the world. And the idea and the term sustainable development comes from development policy. So it actually comes from a time when it was not seen as something global. It was not necessarily seen as something Germany would have to do or Sweden, for that matter, or Finland, but something that would change how we do development, the classical development. And it was just this idea that development somehow has to mix ideas of environmental protection and the typical growth narrative. And this is why the two words come together in sustainable development. It's like bringing together two parts that didn't fit before. And this was something that uh, developed in the late 1980s, but it was part of development. So within development policies, practices, this idea of making things sustainable was always there. And it always meant a lot of different things, but it always meant somehow allowing resources to be there to not depleting something which is useful. That can be knowledge, that can be some forest, that can be water resources, it can be anything. It can be a bank. I mean, if you have like a bank for small farmers sometimes, which is the only form of finance that they get, then sustainability is about making this bank survive the waves and storms of economic decline and business cycles. So sustainability is about making things durable. That was the take we had in development. And now, especially since 2015, sustainability is the big global framework under which basically every country falls. And you can see that because there was this United Nations Declaration, which was called Transforming Our World in 2015, and which includes the so-called Sustainable Development Goals, which a lot of people might have heard about. And when you look at this UN declaration. It shows all the areas where we understand that our ways of producing and consuming have to transform in order to make the planet survive, ourselves survive, and to kind of overcome poverty and inequality and, and everything which is bad. There is a clear framework which is very vast, it's very broad, but the very fascinating thing is that from this moment onwards, this term sustainability, which for a long time was more or less focused on the global south, has become an issue of the global north. The global north is the place where you had like, you know, changes in industry standards and legislation. I mean, the, in 2015, we have realized that we have to change certain ways of producing and consuming. But this UN declaration makes it clear that there's actually no longer such a thing as a separation between the global north and the global south because everybody has to transform. And transforming just means adapting and changing things and ways we do in a way that, as I said, keeps us as a species alive. So you can then claim, as a German minister did at that time, that a country like Germany has actually become an underdeveloped country, because it's about development is a transformation to sustainability, and it's a process that we have, as Germans, have to go and have to do, and that makes us in no ways different from a country like uh, Namibia, in a way, of course. But everybody has to think. All countries have to think about what's the next step. The worst thing to do is to say, "Oh, we can, you know, extract coal as we did before, and we can get our energy in ways we did since the last 150 years, and we can dump all our industrial waste into our rivers like we did before." Everybody knows that this is not the way. We have to transform. And the experiences of development theory and practice can thus be translated, speaking as as a scientist, into this area of sustainability or sustainable studies, if you want to call it like this, which is just looking at this process of transformation. Development is nothing less than a process of transformation. It's the idea that you can change what you do now into something which you improve in order to have a better future for yourself or your country or whatnot. It's not too far off to end up as a professor for sustainability coming from development practice. At least this is how I justify my life.
1: Yes, interesting thoughts. You also wrote another book. The title is Verbot und Verzicht in German. Maybe we can translate it as Prohibition and Sacrifices. Can you tell us a little bit more about this book, uh, What Should Be Prohibited and What Should We Sacrifice, and, or tell us about your book there?
0: The reason for this book is that it actually tries to understand the resistance to transformation. So the specifically German, or in German politics, visible resistance to attempts to transform into more sustainable livelihoods. And what you can observe in German politics for the last 10 years is that every time specific political groups came up with concrete ideas of, you know, how to make first steps and to show that we're really trying to transform, then the rhetorical quip was always, well, this is a politics of prohibition, restrained, and we don't want that. The resistance to transformation Believes that we can transform if we have to transform at all, which in the early years of this debate was for some people still not a realistic option. But the idea is that we don't really have to change. You know, the market will do the trick or some brilliant inventor will come up with some invention of how to capture CO2 in the atmosphere. You can go on a cruise ship as long as you want and as often as you want. You can fly around the world as often as you want, doesn't really matter. You can produce plastics as much as you want because, you know, it's not an issue of politics. And the fatal image behind this rhetoric is that it tells you the way we live is okay. The things we do are okay. So don't change them. We don't have to change because of course change hurts. If you like going to Mallorca four times a year and you're told you're not allowed to fly and you can no, no longer take a boat, then, you know, it's not a nice thought if people tell you you're not allowed to use your car or you shouldn't use your car as much as you do or that, you know, for some reason you're not allowed to enter the inner city borders with your car because it's it's prohibited. These are things that politicians don't like to do because they fear political unrest. They fear that they will not be reelected in, you know, the course of four years. And it's a fatal development because it precludes Necessary steps to change. And as we see in the case of Germany, the effects of climate change and the devastation and destruction of extreme weather moments of weather calamities has shown that things have to, you know, progress, things have to speed up. And we are at the end of a decade in which policy has not done anything to constrain personal consumptive lifestyles. And It's naive to believe that we can go on like this. So there will come a moment where this idea of prohibition, prohibition meaning kind of regulating personal consumptive patterns, will be there. It it will be just there. And politicians will no longer be able to say, you know, oh, this is just, as in German we say, "Verbotspolitik." This is something that shouldn't be part of politics. That's ridiculous. It has to be part of politics in a sense of being responsible for future generations and for ourselves and this is a book about you know why this idea that prohibition should not be part of politics again came into the hearts and minds of the people it's a story of two things of neoliberalist ideology and the mechanisms by which neoliberal ideology made its way into politics and how unfortunately this idea of you know the individual being able to do what he or she likes and wants and nobody having to interfere with your decisions on what to consume and, and what to do in life is exacerbated by a digitalization. I mean, the whole way we are intermixed with the digital world gives us the impression that we are at the center stage of the universe, that life evolves about consumption, that consumption and unlimited consumption is the road to happiness. And that each and every time something happens against my personal will, that I can be, you know, maximally impulsive and effective in my reaction, be it in some commentary, be it in some post. It's all about, you know, emotions linked to our belief that what I consume is my decision and nobody should interfere with this decision. And this is something the digital world does to us. I mean, I'm saying this in a very simplistic manner, but. This is it. This is part of the digital effect that all these uh, smartphones and all these uh, social media and Web 2.0 issues have on us. But at the same time, you have politics which say, yeah, that's true. You can feel like that. It's good. Politics should not mess with you. And this is what I try to describe these dynamics within German politics of uh, the last
1: decade. I think we have pretty much the same sentiment in Sweden also, that everybody else should not drive their car, but I can take my car every day, sort of. Oh, okay. Sad to hear that. I recognize the, the points that you make. I think we have a long way to go, actually. You have now had your academic career for more than a decade and you you made it, you became a professor, so you reached your goal. But an academic career is also full of choices, of course, and also serendipity. I mean, sometimes things happen. Can you share some of the key events during the past 10 plus years or so?
0: The joy of working in academia is the possibility of serendipity. Being able to cross and come up with a topic, and saying to yourself Oh let's read up let's let's learn something about this let's do a seminar on that issue let's write a book on it, which is a freedom that, as a development practitioner I didn't have, so it's not that you could you would say wow this is this was this one moment or this is this one event that has changed my academic life. This is something we have to cherish within the usually insecure framework. Of you know working conditions in academia, that you at least have this freedom of you know thinking what you want to think, working on issues you want to work on, in a way that was impossible when I was doing my nine to five project manager work. And this has something to do with whether you as a person enjoy the former or the latter. So it's not you know that this is better than anything else in life, or or, or it's the best way to live one's life. It has to do with your character. And it has to do with what you're happy at. My fixed professorship, my chair, I've, I've only gotten that since February. So as you said, I've 10 years where I basically was in the job market, had guest professorships here or there, I was never really on dole. But this is not, it's not an easy thing to do. So I would never suggest to anybody to kind of believe in his twenties that he should become a professor and then stay in academia. What I would suggest to young people is always do at least not the same thing I did, but get out of academia after your dissertation, at least in social sciences. It's different from natural sciences. It's different from engineering studies, but in social science, I would suggest go out, get a job. And this helps because I always had this fallback option. Maybe my old employer would have taken me up again as a project manager, but I would have gotten a job in consultancy or in some other NGO or some other development-related thing. Not, let's say, automatically, but this somehow helped to ease the stress of not knowing if the contract of six months as a guest professor would be prolonged and what I will do in ten years, this is really stressful, and the academic system, at least in Germany is very, very unfair in that matter and i 've never come across people who have stayed in academia like until retirement age and have not had the chance to become a professorship. Many of these people are not very happy the way things evolved, and that 's not a good thing. They might you know have written brilliant things, they might have researched brilliant things, but Don't stay in academia. It's not a good option. And then serendipity in research becomes even more fun if you know that, you know, you just try it out and see what happens. But it's a very tough world, speaking from like the German structures. To stay on with third-party funding projects after a PhD is not a good thing to do. For some it is, but for many it's not. It's better to try to get a job with, if you're lucky enough to get one, to have, you know, planable income, to have the time to have a family and not worry about what happens when your funding runs out in two years. And between 30 and 40, it's better not to have that, these issues for some time. So this is my take on the issue. But again, this is I can't generalize, but it's one advice that I give all my PhD students that once you're finished with your PhD with me, go out don't come back for many years.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a good advice. And I think that's a very useful way to think in a lot of subjects. And what you're describing, this tough 10 years between 30 and 40, I think a lot of academics in, in the world experienced this.
0: And then again, there the are really these differences in national cultures. At your workplace, you're able to take like three years leave of absence to become a guest professor. And everybody thinks it's a great idea. There's this openness to this kind of mixing. But in Germany, practically impossible. And that's, that's really not, not very good.
1: You said your year at SCARCIA was uh, transformative and influenced your career a lot. If you could come back now for one year... What would you do?
0: What would I do? Everything that comes to my mind has nothing to do with academia. A lot of things I would do that are like very special to Uppsala and Skass and Sweden and Swedish winter. And But jokes aside, I really enjoyed our stay as a family in Sweden because it was completely different from everything that we had expected. Germans have a very strange I'm not meaning this in a qualitative way, strange view of Sweden, which is the view of Astrid Lindgren summer. And then you come to Skass at the end of August and there's no more summer. And you don't get to see summer when you leave in June. So you experience like a very, very different country and very harsh conditions that have an effect on you, but you learn to cope with them and you learn to love them. So for us being at Sweden was like a very intense year. I mean, we had three really small children. So one thing was that we were very much involved into the Swedish school and education system. So my first born son started school doing discuss here. So like his first school year was a Swedish school year, although they had like these classes in English, but they also had had Swedish and our two other kids were like a dagis. And that really was eye-opening because of course skas is, is an ivory tower and it's an international ivory tower and people speak English and of course that's great because there at least you can find your way and talk your way around. But our contacts to Sweden came through the kids more than with my colleagues. And we got to know Sweden better through our kids. People at Scus allowed me and the staff at Scus allowed me to understand what was going on with our children and the people we knew in the house we lived. And, And this, this was all very interesting because as a German, you think you understand Swedish people. I'm not talking about Swedish language. You understand why they do what they do. And you don't, you don't. There's so many things you do not understand. And it's great to have people to help you understand, you know, the mindset of Swedish people. And then it's just like, you know, some ethnographic experience which is very, very fun. It's, it's just fun. So if I would come back to Scass, I would really indulge in, you know, kind of engaging into Swedish life again. And I would really love to travel more because as our kids were so small and we lived through, I think it was the harshest Scandinavian winter of 30 years, uh, the, the turn of the year two two nine and two ten. then I would just love to see more of the country, like especially up north because we didn't get to go there. But I enjoyed I enjoyed most of my time here because it was just so different. And in terms of serendipity, let me just say one thing. I found interesting to learn that when you come from a development perspective and you come to Sweden with this, you know, naive German kind of view of Sweden, which is, you know, the Germans' fault. (laughs) They don't know so little. It's worse. They believe to know a lot about Sweden, but they don't know anything. And then you kind of learn about Swedish history, recent history. And you have the son of Murdal coming to uh, Skass to have lunch. And you come up with this name, Myrdal Myrdal. Of course, you've heard about Murdal and as a development economist, you've learned about his theories of development, which are very, very famous from the 1950s. But you have no real clue as to the whole process of modernization that Sweden has uh, gone through since the 1930s. And from a development perspective of course our perspective is never industrialized countries it's like you know we always look to the global south but to learn from sweden that there has actually been a very broad transformative process with all its pros and cons which still as let's say an attempt at social engineering which it was and which it still is is fascinating Is absolutely fascinating because all throughout the world, you see the ideas of, of, you know, transformative social engineering, which have not worked, which have been detrimental to society, which had horrible effects on livelihoods and even lives. And then you have this, this one country where you can experience and learn about this, you know, long term process of how people believe to change society. Whether this has been like the greatest thing that has happened to Sweden or if things could have been better, up for other people to decide. But to learn to, to learn more about Sweden as a country, about the history of Sweden from a social science perspective has been absolutely mind-blowing because I would have never expected to find so much food for thought on my own subject by just learning about the place I'm living at because it was the least place. That I would have expected to learn a lot about social engineering, which of course is my ignorance. But that was a good thing to come out of SCUS to learn that the Swedish case is really, really interesting in that regard. People at SCUS were helpful to to help me understand. You could ask people, "How was that in the nineteen seventies when this and that happened? How was that in the nineteen fifties? How was this when, when the school system changed and you know little kids had to go to to dagas and and everything was kind of transformed and." How was that when people started just saying you and, you know, speaking on first name terms? How was that before? And how did people resist? All these questions came up and you had people to ask all time. You know, at every lunchtime, you could ask Professor Wittrock or Barbara Klein and others how these things work. That was really good. I would uh, look forward to learn more about Sweden in all aspects if I came back to discuss.
1: Thank you very much, Dan, for being on on SCAS Talks and talking to me and our listeners, of course. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. You've heard Philip Lepinis, professor in political science with a special focus on sustainability at the Department of Political Sciences at the Freie Universität Berlin. We have talked about his past and current work, his career path and collaborations between academia and stakeholders in the society. This was the third episode in our theme, developmental issues and human rights. In the two previous episodes within this theme, we have heard Michael Watts and Michael Goodhart. Michael Watts talked about oil and its afterlives, the past and future of the oil industry in Nigeria and make a good heart about the complexity and contradictions of human rights. These were episodes number 39 and 36. If you're interested in outreach, you might want to listen to SCAS Talk Spotlight, entitled Opening the Ivory Tower Wide, where I have talked to participants of a symposium held at SCAS in May 2022 about public outreach and dissemination of academic knowledge to society. Currently we are featuring the following topics. Latin America, gender, genetics and evolution, and also developmental issues and human rights. And the list of podcast episodes and themes is constantly growing. We started off in the summer of 2020 with the coronavirus pandemic and then went on to also feature the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa, life in outer space, life science, infrastructures in Asia, citizen and state relations. The variety of themes reflects the multi- and interdisciplinary research environment at SCAS, with fellows from many different disciplines. We are sure that there is something of interest for everyone. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. As always, we are very happy if you could recommend this podcast to a colleague or friend or why not to your students? My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I would like to thank Philipp Lepenis once again for joining me on SCARS Talks. And of course you for listening. Bye for now.